0: If you would please stand and turn to the 55th Psalm with me. Uh, On your pew Bibles, it is on page 475. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's God's house we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you, and he will never and He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but will trust in you. This is God's word.
1: Jake, if you can keep your Bibles open to Psalm 55, let's pray and uh, look at this poem together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us to gather around and under your word that we might hear from you. And we thank you that in hearing your word, your spirit changes lives and so that's our prayer this morning that you would meet us that you would show yourself to us that you would change us by your grace through the gospel of christ in jesus name amen well if you were just joining us we have spent most of our summer uh, looking at selections from book two of the psalms which is chapters 42 to 72 Because Psalms offers us a hymn book for all of life. Uh, These songs give voice to the whole range of life's experiences in a fallen world. In a world that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to because of human sin. And yet, a world where God reigns nonetheless. He's still in charge. He's still on his throne. And and his voice is still our guide. His mercy and his justice are our hope. His presence, our protection, and his glory is our prize. And so this is a book of lament as we cry out to God when life falls apart. It's a book of faith as we wait on the Lord to act. It's a book of praise as we recognize who God is, and as we celebrate what God has done, and it's a book of thanksgiving as we rejoice when God rescues us, when he rescues us from our troubles. And trouble is something that Psalms is not shy about. Uh, There is no hesitancy in this book to call it like it is, or even to call it like we see it, even if there's something else going on. And we have that kind of honesty in the psalm before us this morning, Psalm 55. This psalm is a lament. It is a desperate cry for help when life becomes war. That's the situation being described here. The psalmist has been attacked, ambushed. The language and the imagery of war peppers the entire poem. He speaks of his enemy in verse 3. Of the oppression of the wicked who drop trouble upon him. Think of like lobbing stones or burning coals on the heads of your enemies from atop a wall. He sees violence and strife in the city, verse 9. Day and night they go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud. Treachery, do not depart from its marketplace, and it's a picture of a stronghold of wickedness and violence. The psalmist is embattled in verse 18, with many arrayed against him. It's a picture of armies lined up, ready to attack. He is the victim of war, verse 21, waged by men of blood and treachery, verse 23. And so the picture throughout this psalm is that his life has become war. And his heart reacts to the situation he's in the way you would expect somebody to react to war. He's restless in his moaning and complaining, verse 2. Verse 4, he says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. If you are a veteran who has served on the battlefield during wartime, as some of you are, or if you're someone like my brother in law who grew up in El Salvador during their civil war, where every evening at curfew you had to be in your house below the window lest you get shot. That was his childhood or even if you were in Manhattan or D.C. on September 11, 2001, as some of you were during the terrorist attack, then you know what verses 4 and 5 are talking about. My heart is in anguish. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. That's his reaction. And so he wants to flee, he wants to run and escape, he wants to be vindicated, he wants justice to come on his enemies, his emotional and physical reaction is the way one reacts to war. But what is the precise nature of the conflict here in Psalm 55? It looks like war, It sounds like war, it feels like war, but what kind of war? And the answer is surprising and unsettlingly personal. The ambush that the psalmist describes and reacts to is the betrayal of an intimate friend. That's what's actually happening. We see that revealed in verses 12 to 14. For it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. This psalm reminds us the unfortunate reality that friendships in a fallen world sometimes become war. An ambush on the battlefield can destroy our bodies, but an ambush by a friend whom you trusted can destroy your heart. And that's, that's the conflict in this psalm. That's what has happened here. One author explains the attacker is an intimate associate whom the psalmist knows well from long experience as a close confidant. The sweet fellowship is shared confidential conversation between friends who trust each other. There's an intimacy that's been betrayed. This friend violated his covenant, according to verse 20. He broke a sacred agreement and turned friendship into war. Now, we don't really know um, which friend of David he's talking about. David is the psalmist here. Uh, and there are several people that he could have in mind. Uh, his wife, Michael, who despised him. His son, Absalom, who tried to usurp him. His counselor, Ahithophel, who sided with Absalom and betrayed him. So, so we're not really told who specifically David has in mind. And there's really no way to pin that down. And I honestly think that's intentional. The precise life situation that inspired many of the Psalms is often left unspecified by the authors because these songs are meant to be applied more broadly by God's people. Because David's story of betrayal and broken friendship is our story too. I mean, we all face betrayal in this world. And experience the pain of when someone that we trust hurts us, lets us down, breaks their word, turns against us. And this psalm gives us a voice for when that happens, when our intimacy and trust is betrayed by a friend or a spouse or a parent or sibling, a child, a pastor or spiritual mentor, a coach, colleague a boss you cannot have real friendship without vulnerability and vulnerability is risky it's risky it's why intimacy can be so hard for some of us a good friend of mine describes intimacy between friends or within marriage as taking off your armor and handing the other person your sword. You're opening yourself up. You're letting them into the raw truth of who you are with nothing to protect you anymore. You really have to trust somebody to do that. And the psalmist trusted his friend. He took off his armor. He handed him the sword. His friend looked at the armor and the sword in his hand, he plunged it into his heart. He betrayed him. But it wasn't a literal sword. We see that later in verse 21. And we really see hints of it uh, throughout the psalm. That, that the weapon wielded by this unfaithful friend was not a sword, but words. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You know, we, we teach our kids the playground coping mechanism of uh, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us, right? But the longer you live, the more you realize it doesn't really work that way. Words can destroy us. They can, they can destroy our reputation through gossip or slander. They can destroy our trust or security through lies and deception. They can destroy our self-image through mockery or or sarcasm, our confidence through constant criticism. I mean, sticks and stones can bruise our flesh, but words attack our hearts. That's where they they aim they can create bruises that no one else knows about which can therefore go neglected for years wounds like proverbs 12:18 describes there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts you know everything out of their mouth feels like another stab but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And to make matters worse in this friendship, there was a, there was a, a spiritual component to their intimacy. He and his companion were not just work buddies or workout buddies. They worshipped God together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng It's the picture of the processional of worship at the temple. They didn't just bond over shared interests. You know, you like hiking? I like hiking. Hey, let's hike, you know. Uh, They didn't just bond over shared ambitions. They bonded over the worship of God. Which makes the pain of betrayal all the more amplified and acute. How can you raise your voice in prayer with me or in praise to God with me and then turn and treat me like this? And many of us can tell stories like this. Stories of how we've been let down or turned against or betrayed. And if not our story, the story of someone we know and love. I have a former brother-in-law Whose betrayal is still wreaking havoc on our family three, day, three years later. And uh, will continue really to reverberate for years to come. This is just not something the family's, his former family's, gonna get over quickly. Um, he was a close friend. We served together the Lord. He was a youth pastor, he led worship and his church. He committed adultery and hid it, and then he did it again, and then he found himself in a, an ongoing affair. And he eventually repented and came back, which lasted a, a little over a week and a half. And then he reoffended, and then he repented and he came back. And everybody celebrated. We expressed forgiveness, and that lasted just over a week. And then he repented and he came back. I mean, can you imagine the learning to trust someone again who's played with your heart like a cheap toy like that? Or imagine explaining to your kids, you know, daddy's back. Well, he's gone again. Daddy's back. Well, he's marrying someone else now.
0: Some of us know
1: exactly what that feels like. And some of us know what it feels like to cause that kind of pain to others. And when that happens, when you are hurt from someone that close to you, you get what the psalmist says in verse 12. I mean, if it were an enemy, I could could handle that. If it were some nameless adversary, no problem. It would have been so much easier for a complete stranger than for someone you knew intimately and loved and trusted. And when we experience that kind of deep personal betrayal and the warlike trauma that it creates, or, you know, even when the betrayal we experience is is relatively minor uh, a cruel word, or, or your boss breaks or promise, or your friend ditches you because they want to hang out with someone else tonight. When that happens, we typically respond in one of two ways, what's often called fight or flight. We want to run away or we want to get even. And we see both of those longings in our psalm. In verses six to eight, we see the psalmist's desire to escape from the trial, to run away or retreat and I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. I would get out of here. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness where no one could find me. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind wind and tempest. When life gets hard, when our relationships do not go the direction we're wanting them to go, one of our first reactions is often to run to escape. And just a side note, there are times when a person needs to put physical distance between them and someone who is betraying or hurting them. If someone is abusing you physically or sexually, as much as you might love that person, you're not the one who's going to be able to fix them and you need to get away. You need to talk to someone that you trust. And we need to be ready to listen to those who confide in us in those situations. And so there are times when fleeing is a correct answer to betrayal. When you are in danger, you need to seek distance. But it's really easy for us to think that's Always the answer. Because it always seems like the easiest answer, right? To just run. And we might run physically, or we might just run away emotionally. We might retreat into ourselves. Close ourselves off. We vow never to let this happen again, and so we build a wall around our heart, and we don't let anybody past it ever, lest they hurt us. Or perhaps we run To something else. We look for some other way of escape, a way of self medicating. We run to alcohol, we run to porn, we run to food or to exercise or to entertainment or to to anything that'll just give us a semblance of having escaped the storm, even if just for a minute. Of course, the problem is that that kind of escape isn't real and it doesn't last. And it usually compounds the problem and makes everything worse. And so the first common response to betrayal is to retreat, to run away. The second is to retaliate. And you could see that desire in our psalm as well. Verse 9, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Or verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. Ever prayed that over someone? (laughs) For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. The psalmist wants justice. He wants the treachery of his companion to come back on his head. And he's not wrong to want that. He has been seriously wronged. What has happened to him is not something that he can just shrug off or sweep under the rug and pretend like it never happened. He's been offended to the core of his soul. He wants justice and he deserves justice. The question is, from whose hand will it come? Because there's a difference between justice and retaliation, between vindication and revenge. When we are betrayed, we want to retain control over the justice system. We want to act as the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury, and we want exclusive jurisdiction over the parole board to make sure they don't get off too soon. And so what often happens is that we resort to a a vindictive manipulation where we force people to make it up to us. You, who've hurt me, have to work your way back into my good graces. But I'm always going to hold the bar just an inch or two higher than you can reach to keep you in debt to me so that you can feel the pain and the hurt that you've caused me. Or maybe we take a more passive-aggressive approach and instead we, we just nurture a quiet, unforgiving resentment. So, I may not make a big deal of your sin. I might not even tell you that you've hurt me. I might smile when others praise you. But I know and I will not forget. And every new offense goes on to the list that I keep with me until one day when you really blow it, that whole thing's coming out. Betrayal is war. And when you're ambushed, it is so easy to want to run or pick up a sword and strike back. But the psalmist doesn't give way to either option. He longs to run, but he can't. He's stuck facing the trial. And he desperately wants justice, but he refrains from taking the sword into his own hand. And that's because not only does this psalm give voice to the bitter experience of betrayal, it also gives us guidance on what to do when that happens to us. And the answer is not to retreat or retaliate. The answer is to do what the psalmist is doing. And that is to call on God and trust him with the results. That's what we see in his example back in verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me, for I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. And you can hear the desperation in his cry, this repetition, God, hear me, answer, attend. Hear my complaint. And he's not afraid to call it what it is, a complaint. He's complaining to God. But he's complaining to God. This is a prayer. He directs his attention to God in heaven because he knows he's the only one who's going to be able to do something about this situation. And and this is not just the model that the psalmist gives us to call out to God. This is the psalmist's counsel to us as well. Verse 22, he addresses his readers. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Don't take matters into your own hands, running or retaliating. Don't feel like this is a burden that you've just got to figure out how to bear on your own. Cast your burden on God. Give your pain and your frustration and your anger and your fear and your shame. Give it to him and let him sustain you. Because listen again to his promise. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. There is security, stability that God promises to provide his children even when our closest friendships fail. Now that's a big promise. Uh, He will never let the righteous be moved. It sounds a little too big, honestly when your companion compromises your trust and intimacy the promise that god won't allow you to be moved or shaken that can sound a bit simplistic and trite a little you know too little too late you know couldn't you have acted before i got hurt why why the promise now but that assumes that there's no purpose in hardship Or nothing to be gained from sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That assumes God's main job is to protect us from hard things. When in fact there is a much, much bigger and more beautiful purpose. For which he is working all things out. Namely his glory and kingdom. And it's this kingdom and glory that we behold and learn to depend on when we cast our burden on God and trust him with the results. That's what we see in verses 16 to 19. The psalmist actually tells us why he's calling on God. He gives us the reasons. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and I moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage or or the battle against me. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. So, So why call on God and trust him? instead of figure this out on my own. There are four reasons in these verses I just read. Four reasons to trust God in the face of betrayal. First, because God is still on his throne. He who is enthroned from of old. as, As much as we wish that our circumstances would be different, it's not as though God fell asleep Or he slipped off of his throne for a moment and everything, you know, went out of whack. He has reigned from eternity past. He will reign for eternity future. And he is reigning right now in the midst of our hardship and heartache. And he is reigning for our good. For our benefit. Which might not make any sense at all to us just like our children don't always understand why we make them do difficult things i mean set your child in a dentist chair so some other person can drill a hole in their tooth i mean who would do that it just sounds terrible but it's for their good we do it cuz we love them and so god in christ is working all things out for our good and his glory so we cast our burdens on god because he is still reigning from his throne even if we can't make sense of what he's doing second we trust god because he hears evening and morning and at noon i utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice I mean, it may feel like no one's listening. It may feel like my prayers are just bouncing off of the ceiling. But when we pray in Christ, God hears our prayers in heaven. And think about it. The God who rules the entire universe cares enough about you personally that when you talk, he listens. I mean, imagine trying to put a call into the White House. Like, what are your chances of actually getting through to the president? Somewhere between slim and none, right? But the God of the universe who rules everything hears your prayers. It's amazing. Third, God redeems. He reigns, he hears, he redeems. He doesn't just hear our prayers, he acts to do something To redeem and to save. But I call to God and the Lord will save me. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle against me. He doesn't leave us alone in our pain. But in his mercy and his compassion. He meets us where we are. To deliver and to redeem us. To restore our broken hearts. And sometimes that means restoring The broken relationship. God can do it. As much as it may feel impossible, God is able to do that. There is nothing that sin touches on earth that the grace of heaven cannot redeem. No marriage is beyond repair if both husband and wife are willing to submit their lives to Christ. No friendship is, irrep- is uh, irrep- irreparably. Is that how you say that? Irreparably damaged. No friendship is damaged beyond repair if both parties are willing to seek the grace of Christ together, which is not easy, and it takes time, and it often takes a whole lot of help. It takes a miracle of God which means hoping against hope if you're the one who's been betrayed and clinging to the cross as your only defense for the one who's done the betraying. But There is hope. Because, I mean, you think about it. If, if the cross and resurrection are able to save our souls from an eternity in hell, can they not also restore a broken marriage or a broken friendship or a broken family? God can do it. But sometimes the redemption of God doesn't result in reversing the offense, You know, making the friendship just like it, it was before. Sometimes God's redemption comes simply by giving us something better. Himself. A friend who will never Betray us, who always hears, who always speaks the truth, a companion who will never leave nor forsake us, but in fact has laid his life down in order to make us his forever. That's the friend we have in Jesus. But not only do we have an eternal companion in Christ. We also have a Savior who's intimately acquainted with personal betrayal. Think of Jesus' life. I mean, you think of Judas, one of his 12 disciples, one of just 12 people whom Jesus personally chose and called to follow him and spend three years with him, learning who he is, how he teaches, how to pass on the gospel. One of 12 And he sold his king for just 30 pieces of silver. You think Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed? But it wasn't even just Judas. All of his disciples ultimately abandoned him at the cross. I mean, the ones who swore the greatest loyalty pretended like they had never met him in order to save their own skin. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. And that betrayal resulted in his excruciating death on the cross. And yet, and yet, it was on the cross where Christ defeated the power of betrayal by willingly taking it on himself. Refusing to run or retaliate. It's in the cross that the sin of betrayal can be forgiven. The betrayal that we experience and the betrayal that we commit. And it's through the cross that we can find grace to follow Christ's example of loving our friends who betray us rather than retreating or retaliating. Through Jesus, we need no longer carry the weight of betrayal on ourselves. But we can cast our burdens on the Lord, entrusting ourselves to the just judge and leaving the results in his hands. And that brings us to the fourth reason that the psalmist calls on God. Because God will establish justice. He will. Look again at verse 19. God will give ear and humble them, the companion who betrayed, because they do not change and do not fear God. And verse 23, but you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Casting our burden on God in the face of betrayal doesn't mean that we're saying, hey, It didn't really happen or it didn't really hurt. No, it did happen and it does hurt. And betrayal deserves to be met with justice. But God is the just judge. And calling on him is putting the matter in his hands. And here's the hard part. Leaving it there. Listen to how 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 puts it, which echoes our psalm. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You cannot cast your burdens on God unless you humble yourself before him and trust him with the results we we want to exalt ourselves we have to trust god to exalt us at the right time he is our vindication he is our vindication and he will deal justly with betrayal and with all human sin either through the cross Where Christ took it on himself and exhausted God's wrath against it? Such that forgiveness is possible? Or in the final judgment? Where those who reject Christ will bear the weight of sin themselves? But justice will be served. And if we have confidence in God to establish justice, that means we don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to bear a grudge or get even. We are free to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us just as Christ commanded and just as Christ modeled. And here's the real miracle. We are free to forgive. We are free to forgive those who've betrayed us. Because God in Christ has forgiven us. Listen to 1 Peter two twenty one through 23. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Think of all the juicy things Jesus could have said from the cross about how he was going to get them back. He didn't. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't run He didn't retaliate. He relinquished his right to get even because he knew that he has a just judge who reigns over even this unjust situation. And that's the kind of faith he calls us to in the face of betrayal. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, and that's a key phrase there, we can't control how the other person responds, but so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is impossible from the grace of Christ. But in Christ, it's not just possible, it's normal. This is how the Christian life works. Even when our closest friendships fail, God is faithful to sustain us and to redeem us. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what wisdom But peace. Thank you that you are a God who meets us in every situation in life. And Lord, as much as we hate facing these kinds of trials, thank you that you promise that the righteous will never be moved. That your children will be sustained by your hand, not by our own. Lord, give us the courage to believe that. Give us the courage to hope against hope for those of us who are living and facing uh, this kind of painful betrayal. Give us the humility and repentance for those of us who are guilty of it. Would you cause all of us to cast our burdens on you, to trust you, you, to follow you as we seek to display your glory in our lives, in our families, as a community, as a congregation, Lord. Thank you that you are on the throne and that you redeem. May we cast our burdens on you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.